The message this morning will be taken from John, the Gospel of John. We've been reading a lot of John. If you could only have a couple of chapters of the Bible to take with you somewhere, and you were stuck with those, what, which chapters would those be? Have you ever thought about that? Well, this afternoon I would encourage you to go and read Revelation 21 and 22. I think those are critical passages so we can see where it's all going. We're going to read from John this morning from the first chapter and then we're going to the last chapter. And it's interesting because uh, the resurrection interprets really all of the scripture for us. And I want you to see these narrative arcs. And so we're going to start off in John chapter 1. I think you'll begin to see what John is doing here. So beginning at John 1, verses 1 through 14, then I'm going to skip over to chapter 20. Hear the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we're going to go over to John chapter 20, which begins to interpret everything in the Scriptures in light of the resurrection. Getting at verse 1 through verse 17. Now on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb, and they both ran together. The other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the Scriptures, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes, but Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping, 
And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And when she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain, then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? So she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabbani, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go and tell my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are that you have called us your sons and called us into the holy light of Christ Jesus and grafted us in him where we have union and communion with him in glory, where we are seated even now in him in the heavenly places. Send now your Holy Spirit to illuminate and teach us Glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And where this is all going. And we pray that the Spirit would make fresh application in our hearts today to warm us up to the truth of the Gospel and to believe it with new eyes, with stronger faith, as we behold the glory of our Lord and all of His glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I chose the beginning and the end of John's Gospel to give us some insight to John's approach to the narrative of his Gospel. First of all, we open up the Gospel with the Incarnation, Jesus coming into the world in humanity and flesh. And we end it in the resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead in this world. And what we have is two important aspects of John's message of what Jesus came to do that bookend, if you will, the entirety of the Gospel. And John is deliberately giving us his Gospel in this narrative of the creation narrative. And as we see the creation narrative of John's Gospel unfold, we come to see the resurrection of Jesus as the dawning of a new world, a new creation. The beginning of the long prophesied age to come, which has already begun in this present age. So the first thing John does to connect those dots of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, he begins back in Genesis 1 and 2, but now with fresh understanding. In the beginning was the Word, which takes us back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we can't lose that particular connection. And then God's Spirit hovers over the face of the waters. And the first thing that God did on the first day of creation is He said, let there be light. 
And light comes and shines in the darkness and He separates the light from the darkness. There was the first day, evening and morning. Originally, darkness was a part of creation, but, but since the fall, it has become a malevolent part of, of creation. When Jesus was born here, the light came into the darkness And the darkness did not comprehend it. And so light and darkness began to be a very key theme in John's Gospel. We see this in chapter 1, in chapter 3, in chapter 5, in chapter 8, and 9, 11, and 12. All the way up to the wonderful discourse in the upper room. And John's narrative finds its way through all of the darkness of the long years of Israel's desolation. And then it burst into light on Easter morning. And while this echoes back to the original creation, it also is bringing in something new. And whatever John's message is, and he was clear about it, he wants us to deliberately connect the dots with what Jesus did and His resurrection back to the beginning. Well, the second thing John wants us to identify as the narrative begins to unfold, both from Genesis forward and from John forward, he wants us to identify with the Exodus theme. Exodus was about the delivery from bondage to sin in order to worship God, to restore creation. And so in the Passover deliverance, we have echoes of that in John chapter 8 when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and other disciples and He brings this sharply into focus when He says, and you know, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And then the Pharisees get in a little bit of this argument with Him, well, we've never been in bondage to anyone. He's very clear, but I was speaking about bondage to sin. And then as the narrative begins to unpack, that's exactly what Exodus was about. It was freeing His people from the bondage, showing forth the bondage that this world has been bound in sin. And when God's people were set free, Then out of Egypt, He brings them through the Red Sea, and then He gives them for the rest of Exodus. Exodus is not just the delivery. That's half of the book. The other half has to do with the building of a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is where God would dwell among His people, with His people, and it was the place where heaven and earth come together. See, heaven is is God's space, and the earth is our space, and the tabernacle is the intersection between those two. And this is where we meet with God. This is where we worship Him among the glory cloud. John doesn't want us to miss this point, where he says Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the word. In the flesh, He pitched his tent, and he dwells among the people. He identifies with our lot, and then he makes the way for us to come and worship God 
in His glory. And this is the glory of God that has come down to dwell among His people. Jesus, the Deliverer from our bondage, is in reality the new tabernacle. In fact, it is what the tabernacle pointed forward to. He is the reality. The intersection between heaven and earth. And the third thing that John does is he shows us that in the incarnation of Jesus, that God wants to show what His glory is like. And that's what He does with the whole rest of the Gospel of John. Jesus is identified with this glory cloud that led the Hebrews through the wilderness who descends down upon the tabernacle. And now... He is the glory of God that dwells with His people. What does that glory look like? Well, that's the question the disciples ask Jesus. Echoing back to Moses, when Moses says, Lord, show us Your glory. Philip asks the same question. Jesus, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the glory of God. Inherent in that very truth of that statement is why it is vain to attempt to depict Jesus in any kind of pictures or art seeing there's a spiritual dimension to this seeing. The whole of John's Gospel is written to describe what God's glory looks like in the life of Jesus. When John depicts in chapter 2, where Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple, that's the prophetic sign that the temple, this building, would be destroyed and would be rebuilt. But he was speaking about the temple Of his body. The reality of the heaven and earth intersection. The tabernacle and temple were were just the advanced signpost of the new temple that would come forth. And when Jesus would come into this world, the divine glory would be revealed here. Remember in John chapter 3, then he has this discourse with Nicodemus, who was the teacher of the Jews, and He was teaching Nicodemus about the necessity of the new birth. The old creation wasn't good enough now because of the corruption of man and rebellion to God. And so therefore, a new birth, a new kind of life was needed. It was the life in the Spirit that Jesus was speaking of. Echoing back to Ezekiel. In John chapter 5, he then shows us the narrative when Jesus comes as the glory of God and He dwells among His people to lead them out of bondage into the great tabernacle, the intersection between heaven and earth where God's glory dwells and where people can come into the presence of God. John chapter 5 depicts a part of this where God brings judgment in Jesus. 
Now, it's not the kind that we always think of. We always think of judgment as negative, as bad. And, and there is an aspect, if you're not on God's side, that will be. But when He comes at first, He comes to bring judgment, but He does not come to judge the world yet in the same way. See, the judgment is bringing justice into the world. Justice is coming from the same word as the word righteousness, and so to bring justice means you're making everything right that is wrong here. And that's why in Psalm 96 and Psalm 98, the people seeing that God will judge the earth with equity, He will judge the world in truth, and, and that's where, yay, we are praising God. This is what we want. This kind of justice is a good thing for this world, is a needed thing. It's part of the new creation. In John chapter 6, then John begins to echo back to the time when God provided for His people with the bread, the manna, and He says, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. God provides for His people even in the wilderness wanderings and for every situation. John shows us different signs throughout the Gospel of Jesus doing extraordinary things. But it's important for us to realize that God's glory was not seen in a blaze of light, nor in a pillar cloud, but in the person of Jesus, who loved His own in the world. And He loved them to the uttermost. And all these temple themes where heaven and earth come together are just packed into this wonderful discourse that only John gives us from chapters 13 through 17, one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture. I trust maybe one of those chapters would be one that you would take with you. As Jesus was in the upper room, and these chapters began to reveal what He's teaching them before their greatest trial of life, before their greatest crisis, Jesus is teaching them of the Trinity and of heaven and earth coming together in Him. He begins teaching them and explaining to them that the divine life all along has been in Him, in Jesus. And now the divine Spirit will be with them in the same kind of power. So that as He prays in the 17th chapter, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one. See, the new temple, this singular construction is not with bricks and mortar, but a temple that's starting with Jesus going throughout the entire world with His people. And the new temple becomes the epicenter of the kingdom of God. His dominion here. So by the time we get to John chapter 20, creation and the theme that has followed it throughout this has been well developed, so it's no surprise to us, but it was certainly a surprise to them when they come to the tomb and Jesus wasn't there. They had not yet known this. 
It wasn't because Jesus hadn't told them. It wasn't even that the high priest and some of those weren't suspect. But they get a big surprise. In John chapter 20, verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And the tomb was empty. Twice in this particular chapter, John informs us clearly and emphasizes the fact it was on the first day of the week. And by this time, we should have the narrative well ingrained in our mind to think of the first day of the week. Ah, that's when light bursts forth out of darkness. Genesis 1. See, he's assuming we have this now. Twice he mentions this. One time he mentions the first day of the week in the morning. And the second time he mentions the first day of the week in the evening when he comes to the disciples. Immediately he's taking us back to Genesis, but with a different twist now. The first day of the week in Genesis 1, when light sprung forth, and now this light shines forth in the morning, and it shines forth in the evening, and something of a new creation has begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John would write later about the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth coming together, and when he writes there, he says, there, there's not going to be any night." There's not going to be any sun because God and the Son, His Son, are its light. And Jesus rose up from the grave. Something new had dawned. And this world has not been the same since. Mary goes out and she's still not quite with understanding yet. And she turns around and Assuming Jesus was the gardener, asking questions. You know, was that not a reasonable mistake to make? Thinking Jesus to be the gardener of the garden. Yeah? When you're thinking in terms of this creation narrative, John is echoing back to Adam, who was the keeper and the protector of the garden. She had made the mistake on the one hand, and on the other hand, there was profound truth. Jesus, the last Adam, is the gardener of the new paradise here. And John gives us the account in verse 21, and when he says, when he enters that time in the presence of his disciples on the first day of the week at evening, he comes to his disciples and he says, peace to you as the father sent me, I now send you. And when he said this, the scripture tells us that John says, and he breathed on them and he says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. 
Are you getting it now? Are you seeing it? This is echoing back to Genesis 2-7 where God takes the dust of the earth and He breathes into it the breath of life and man becomes a living being. And here is Jesus as the last Adam now breathing His Spirit upon His disciples. And so a new kind of life springs forth in His disciples. A new kind of humanity. A new race. John wants his readers to know that something profound has happened here in the resurrection of Jesus. A new creation has begun. We sang all through the morning about this new creation. It's not a creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, but a creation ex verte, creation out of the old. And that is why we still see the nail prints in Jesus' hands. There's still a scar in His side. And the resurrection is taking the old and it's making something gloriously new. He begins in the new creation by taking the old and making it a new creation. By taking creation and then beautifying it and just bringing justice, bringing, making everything wrong here that's right. To create all things new, Jesus had to deal with every one of the corrupting influences here. He defeated the power of sin He defeated the devil and He defeated death when He rose from the grave. And all of the enemies of the world. And on the cross, He dealt with them all. And in His resurrection, He triumphs over all of them, making all things new. Now David's son, who was the king of kings and the lord of lords, would rise up. And Jesus does bring new political implications to the world. The book of Romans tells us that Jesus, this king, will rise up to rule the nations, which is echoing back to Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, and those messianic psalms. But he's not bringing in a new revolutionary party. See, for kingdoms of this world and the kings that rule in those dominions, death is the ultimate weapon of tyrants and of kings who are tyrants, who rule by fear and by threat and by coercion. Jesus has a greater weapon now that goes beyond death. Yeah, it's life. Jesus has conquered death. You know what that means? It means that tyrants and all of their power are removed. They have no power. No king has any power by threatening coercion and threatenings of death. Because His power has been 
destroyed in the resurrection of Christ. His greatest weapon has been annulled. And now Jesus and Jesus' people share in the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul begins in chapter 1 of Ephesians that the same power that raised Jesus from the grave, I want you to know, is in you. See, this is really why Jesus was not concerned about His people losing their lives for His sake. And He doesn't want you to be concerned about that either. And this is just a timely application for us today. For us this morning, right here in the context of where we're living and the time in which we're living, the doctrine of the resurrection has political implications. If God is going to renew this world, and you can trust Him to do that, then whatever you need to do in this present world for the kingdom of God's sake, even if it results in your death, that's okay. It's okay. Because God's going to come down, He's going to sort it all out. Don't you worry about that. The resurrection of Jesus begins a new creation here. The power that has held the world back from, from its growth and from its consummation has now been defeated. God has delivered us from this present evil age. And now this present evil age is still going on out there in the world. But God has delivered us from this present evil age and He has brought us into the age to come. This prophesied age to come, which still has a, a consummation, but there's this awkward overlap between the two now. But for Christians united to Christ, the future is experienced in the present by the power of the Spirit in faith. Every Sabbath... God time, yeah, every Sabbath is an anticipation of the fullness of the age to come. It's God's future being brought into our present experience by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Exactly how the sacraments work. So while the present evil age rumbles on in the world, the age to come is let loose in God's people filled with the Holy Spirit, shaping the world and taking dominion of it. And so while we're waiting for the glory to be consummated, what are we to do? How are we to be living our lives? And that's a key question that many Christians get wrong today. We shouldn't think of the kingdom of God as rolling out the tanks and getting ready for the nuclear war and stockpiling the nuclear warheads. You know, the fruitful activity here on earth is going to be subject to your understanding of how it all works out toward the end. We are not old creation people. We are new creation people. We are kingdom of God people. And His kingdom is not of this world. 
But his kingdom is in this world. It's not of the present evil age, but it is of the age to come. And these two are drastically different things. And rather than sending in violent weapons of death, you know what God does? He sends in humble mourners who are meek. The weapons of kingdom life are summed up in in beatitude living. Whose will be the kingdom? Those who are poor in spirit, humble. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Those, that will be the kingdom. Who will be comforted? Those who mourn, who grieve for their sins, who grieve for the, the sins of this world. Who will inherit this earth? The meek. Who will be filled? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. Who will obtain mercy? Those who are merciful. Who will see God? The pure in heart. Who will be called the sons of God? The peacemakers. See? And and this is how Jesus' sovereignty over the world is presently implemented. For 2,000 years, the public conscience has been radically changed by the power of the Gospel in this resurrection kind of life. The Gospels redefine power. It's not in domineering or lording it over, but it is in service and love. I know that's hard for us Americans to get a hold of. I know it's hard for us independent-minded, autonomous, self-sufficient, frontier, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, revolutionary, spirited Americans to get a hold of. But as a new creation, this is what Jesus has shown us to do. It's a covenantal life. It's a new kind of kingdom with a new character. It brings beauty and justice out into the world. It's showing the beauty of the gospel and everything it touches, it beautifies. It beautifies our worship. It beautifies everything we do. It beautifies our buildings. It removes ugliness, displaces it with beauty, creative beauty and justice, making right all the things that are wrong here. And as we live redemptively, that is how we are called to live. To go out and take God's beauty out into the world. To take His wisdom out into the world. And to make right the injustices here. In the power of of the Spirit of God according to His truth. I want to close with three applications. I want to start with you personally, with me individually first. In this new creation life, in this new humanity, in the power of the Spirit that God has given you, the very power that raised Christ up from the dead, you need to be about in, the, in His Spirit, rooting out the ugliness in your life. And taking out all of the injustices in your own personal life. Get the big beam out first. Yeah? This is the kingdom character that you are to be growing in. Growing in this meekness and this poor spirit and the humility and and and. 
and in the mourning for sin and a hungering and thirsting for righteousness and the pursuit of holiness and peace. Get the ugliness out of your life. Get the darkness out by replacing it with the light of the Gospel. With the light. Amen. Amen. This is personal growth. You began changing that in your life as in the power of cultivating this beauty and justice in your personal life. Empowered by Empowered by the Word and prayer and the sacraments. This is where temple theology and kingdom theology come together. It is the worship that is the fountainhead of all that then springs forth into the world. And so we all need to get the ugliness out of our lives. The injustices. Those things that are wrong. Through the power of the Word and the Spirit, and the presence of God in worship, beautifies us. He makes things right that are wrong. And when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who forgives you. And you go to the resurrected Jesus who will save you to the uttermost because He ever liveth to make intercession. The second application then would then to take that to the next realm of your covenant living, and that is with your own family. Root out the ugliness and injustices in your own family and replace those ugly injustices with beauty and truth and goodness. Dads, husbands, this is your responsibility. Wives, children, this is also yours to follow Him. And follow His lead. The way you talk to each other in your homes. The, the kingdom living through the Beatitudes. The love that Jesus came to bring. The light of the Gospel in each other's lives. It's this service. You have to have others to serve. To serve. And now God has placed you in a wonderful, beautiful family to serve. Not to Lord over. It's a new way. It's part of your new humanity. And the third application, I'm going to give you four instead of three. Is then you expand that to your church body. You now come into this greater household of faith and now you have opportunity to serve in the power of the Spirit. To root out the ugliness in relationships. To be joyful and have peace with God so that it expresses itself in suffering long with people. Being gentle, good, and kind with people. To be self-controlled with people. Have the fruit of the Spirit. The power of the truth. And the goodness of the Gospel flourish here among us. And then the fourth one is from here, 
from the glory, from the presence, in the name of Christ, behind the veil, as we give our praise and glory to God, we then go out into the world. And we serve the world. Isn't that what Jesus says? He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve, to give my life to serve, to serve the world that my Father has so loved. And you go out and you serve. You serve the King. You love your neighbor. And you serve your neighbor by bringing beauty into his life. You serve our community by setting right those things that are wrong here. As I've mentioned before, that can be as simple as picking up a piece of trash on the ground. Your neighbor drops the trash. He throws it out the window. And you pick it up. Now fill in the blank with the kind of trash the neighbors throw out into the world through their sinful lives. And you're going to be there to pick it up with the Gospel. We are called to improve the society the way that Jesus Himself improves society. By displacing ugliness with beauty. Laboring to change the public conscience with justice and making the things wrong here right. In God's way, with God's character, according to truth, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that means... That means even genuinely, sincerely loving even your enemies. If you're called to be in the kingdom, if you've tasted and you've seen that God is good, and you are changed into this new humanity, I cannot hear you say, I do not love my wife. I do not love my husband. I do not love my father. I do not love my child. If you cannot even love your own family, how will you love those who hate you? You start it here. You expand it to your family. Take it into the church. Take it into the world. And guess what? The world is going to hate you. John told you this. Jesus told you this. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But guess what? I've called you to love them. I've called you to love them. This is a new way. Yes, it's going to take a longer approach than the way that you would think about it. But generation after generation after generation, and here we are 2,000 years after the resurrection, and how much change in this world has gone on for the last 2,000 years. I know that we see and we only read about what happened this past week. Folks, the power of the Gospel has been potent in this world. It has changed the public conscience. It has changed the character, the way that people work. 
And the more that we can be faithful to the gospel and in living in the power of the resurrection, faithful to God and his covenant, the more potent we become to change the world for tomorrow. It is your character and how you live your life that is more potent that you will never be able to measure in this life, but you let God, He's got the tally, and He never forgets your faithful ministry. And He will reward your ministry accordingly. A new world has begun in the resurrection of Christ. The old world is passing away. A new world has sprung forth. We have a long ways to go before we see that perfect glory. When Jesus comes back and in an instant makes everything perfect. But a tremendous amount of progress has been made in 2,000 years. And let me encourage you to keep up that good work. Because faithful is he that began the work in you. Is also he that is going to complete that work. Stay faithful to Christ. Rely on the power of the Spirit. The very power that raised Christ up from the dead has been given to you. And we now come to word and prayer and sacrament to be empowered for the work he's sending us out to do tomorrow. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the glory of the new creation which we're getting a taste of today on this Sabbath, in this time that we have, in this place that we have, meeting with our God around your table. And we pray that you would bless us in here with an understanding of the truth. And may that truth set us free. That we would be free indeed and that we can stand fast in the liberty wherewith we have in Christ Jesus, that we might walk in love, walk in the light, walk in wisdom as we walk with our God here. We pray the Spirit would make application to each one of us and encourage us in the ministries that we're engaged in. Encourage us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Encourage us with the power of the Gospel that we celebrate this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.